0: Thank you. Afternoon, evening, morning, wherever, whenever we find you. You're tuning in to Doth Protest Too Much, a Protestant historical theology podcast. If you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that takes reviews, go ahead and uh, feel free to give us a rating or review. We'd really appreciate it. Appreciate any and all feedback. Um, on today's episode, I'm greatly honored to have a fantastic theologian on the show, um, Dr. Roger E. Olson. Um, He's the author of many books on theology and church history, and some which include the recent title, The Journal of Modern Theology from Reconstruction to Deconstruction, published by InterVarsity in 2013, and also God in Dispute Conversations Among Great Christian Thinkers from the early church into the 21st century, published by Baker Academic in 2009, and Finding God in the Shack, published by InterVarsity Press in 2009. Dr. Olson has written and contributed articles for such publications as Christianity Today, excuse me, Scottish Journal of Theology, Christian Century, and Christian Scholars Review, among many others. And he also hosts a blog, My Evangelical Arminian Theological Musings, at the website Patheos, where he regularly writes, and I highly encourage our listeners to check his writings out. So, Dr. Olson, welcome to the show. I'm delighted you're here. Um,
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, uh, you're welcome. We we thank you for being on, and so we're bringing you on the show today to discuss uh, liberal theology, uh, or what is and has been called uh, liberal theology, and it's it's somewhat of an umbrella term, is it not? <laughs> I guess that's a broad question, but uh, but what uh, what what first comes to mind when you when you think of liberal theology, and, and especially as, as the kind that you've been studying
1: okay that's a big question and i'll try to keep it short but that's difficult by the way i have a book that's been accepted by zondervan for publication it'll be published next year in june the title is against liberal theology and the subtitle is putting the brakes on progressive christianity so i encourage people to read it not judge it by the title um, as with all books yeah So when I think of liberal theology, the first thing I want to do for people is to clarify the word liberal. If you look the word liberal up in any dictionary of philosophy, uh, there are gonna be two main definitions. One is an emphasis on individual freedom of thought and expression. And the second one is generosity. But that's not the way liberal is being used today uh, in the street, in homes and churches, it's being used in so many ways that it's really hard to uh, define it. And uh, for many people, it just means anything they disagree with theologically or that they perceive as being somehow um, edgy, new, uh, threatening, uh, especially if they consider it unbiblical. So liberal is used very, very broadly today, both in politics, and in theology and religion. So in the book, what I try to do is define what I mean by liberal theology, and I've been a scholar of of Christian theology, especially European and American, but also other uh, countries around the world for many, many years. And I focused a lot of my attention on liberal, real liberal theology. So let me start with that, real liberal theology. And first of all, I want to say that real liberal theology is a tradition. It's not just whatever someone thinks is risky theologically or for example women in ministry i've heard people say that that a seminary that encourages women to go into ministry is automatically liberal for that reason but i grew up in a fundamentalist church that had women pastors and that that surprises many people people have said to me when did you become liberal and start believing in women ministers uh, my mother was an ordained minister uh, yeah yeah. She ministered alongside my father, but she did a lot of pastoral counseling and uh, did a lot of the work of the church and was every bit as much ordained as he was. She could have pastored a church in that denomination, and many women did. So that's not it. So what is it? Liberal theology is a tradition that began with a German pastor-theologian named Friedrich Schleiermacher. Who lived in the late 1700s, early 1800s, and was a a, a real German celebrity because he led resistance against Napoleon when Napoleon invaded Prussia. He was one of the founders of the University of Berlin. Uh, He wrote many, many books. Mm -hmm. And two of them stand out as especially important in the history of liberal theology. And one is. um, on religion, speeches to its cultured despisers. And there he redefines religion from anything it had ever been defined as before, uh, completely away from doctrines. He said doctrines don't really matter to religion. There will always be doctrines, but they're not of the essence of religion. True religion is an inner experience of God. Uh, he called it God consciousness. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> mystical idea of what true religion really is. And he said, everybody is religious, whether they know it or not, because everybody has a pre-conscious awareness of God. In his other major book, The Christian Faith, which is a systematic theology, he really laid out a program for Christian, liberal Christian theology. And first of all, for Schleiermacher and all liberal theologians since, so for about 200 years, this tradition has been going on, theology is done from below, not from above. So it does not begin with special revelation. It does not consider special revelation from God, such as the Bible, the the supreme authority for theology. The supreme authority for theology is two things. Number one, universal human religious experience, such as Schleiermacher called God consciousness. And number two, the best of modern culture. What Mm -hmm. modern cultures, especially science and philosophy, but also the social sciences, Mm -hmm. are telling us. And that's at least equally authoritative with the Bible. Normally, liberal theologians regard the Bible as something like our sacred stories, but mm-hmm. not supernaturally inspired, not verbally inspired, not authoritative. Uh, one leading liberal scholar at Union Theological Seminary, Gary Dorian, defines liberal theology as, uh, or beginning with, there's no authority outside the self. Mm-hmm. Okay, well that's enough, I think, to get us started. And for yeah. people to at least have a sense that liberal theology is not just some kind of amorphous, anything outside of the norm of what I think is normal, but it's a tradition of doing yeah. theology. Um, it's funny you mentioned
0: Schleiermacher. So, uh, so some of my own coursework recently I've been I was reading The Christian Faith by Friedrich Schleiermacher. Um and, you know, like you said, he considered the founder of liberal theology, sometimes called the father of modern theology. And I'm fascinated by a certain section of this pretty large volume of work that he did, where he gets into such things as miracles that are so central to at least what Christians traditionally believed about the central figure of their faith being Jesus. And Schleiermacher is, um, he's ambiguous in some sense, but not flat out in denial of such things such miracles as you know the virgin birth the resurrection the ascension he doesn't flat out deny them at least not in the work but he does essentially say that any belief in these does not add anything to jesus's importance that um i guess the dignity of jesus being redeemer does not rely on because that already is predicated on him jesus
1: right what would you like say to to that i guess um Well, this is common, I find, among all real liberal theologians, and I keep saying real liberal theologians to distinguish what we're talking about. Um, For for example, I've been called a liberal theologian just for believing in women in ministry and things like that.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Um, So if we're talking about real liberal theologians, very few of them believe in miracles. Um, So for Schleiermacher and all real liberal theologians since, they would not tell you you can't believe in miracles but they would say miracles are not of the essence of christianity so it's optional Mm -hmm. believe in miracles or not and my sense is they don't real liberal theologians don't believe in what you and i mean by miracles that is really extraordinary events that can only be explained through divine intervention Mm -hmm. they don't believe in those um, and so,
0: because they have such a secondary place, if at all, um, what kind of, because Schleiermacher came out of a certain context, what kind of paved the way? What was this mentality that doesn't really, that is so indifferent toward the idea of miracles? Because I think about my own personal, you and I can both probably say, we may have experienced some things we could call miracles, but like every day we probably don't see them, a lot, and most people don't. So. This I, I could see how this could rationally appeal to like people of that of the time of Schleiermacher and, and today, but but what kind of set the scene for? I mean, what was the context that Schleiermacher comes out? What were the currents of thought that were going on prior to him?
1: So I heard a lecture by a leading British theologian not too long ago in which he said that <clears throat> Schleiermacher could only really have come about as who he was in Berlin. Mm-hmm. He would- Explain what was going on in Berlin in the late 1700s, early 1800s. There was something called salon culture, which meant that highly educated people, people who are associated with the University of Berlin and similar universities in Germany, gathered together in homes for discussions of things like religion. And uh, many of them simply said, given modern science, given what we know Mm -hmm. about the universe, uh, given the laws of nature that Newton and others have discovered it's no longer possible to be a a modern person, a scientifically educated modern person, and believe in miracles, because they claimed that um, believing in a miracle would disrupt the harmony of nature, and that science depends on belief in the harmony of nature, that all things in nature are interconnected. And I have to throw another name out here. David Hume, the Scottish philosopher who had been translated into German, very influential. He died in 1776, the same year that the Declaration of Independence was signed here. And David Hume defined miracle, and I think this is crucial. David Hume defined miracle as a violation of a law of nature. Um, I believe that is not what a miracle is. And I've argued on my blog and in some of my books, as others have, that that was a huge mistake for people to ever think that a miracle is a violation of a law of nature. But that definition caught on. Right. A lot of people began to believe that you couldn't be scientifically informed and believe in miracles because miracles are violations of the laws of nature. And why would God violate the laws that he instilled in nature? So questions like that came along from David Hume, but others, other philosophers as well. And the people of this Salon culture that Schleiermacher was embedded in were leaving the churches. Mm-hmm. Schleiermacher wanted to pull them back in. So yeah. one way he could do that is by saying, oh, you don't have to believe in miracles to be a Christian.
0: Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, I, I, I of course encourage our readers to check out uh, Dr. Olson's blog, my evangelical Arminian theological musings on pathos. But while we do have you on the podcast, I am curious, even though I should do my own homework, uh, what what did you say, or what has your has been your argument for how we should define a miracle, yeah. in a, is, in a, as opposed to the human violation
1: right. type of way? Well, I can't claim any originality. Um, sure. Yeah. Really, everything important has been said before. So a theologian, an American theologian by the name of Horace Bushnell of New England, who was probably the most influential American theologian, along with Charles Finney, let's say, of the 19th century. They were very different. But Bushnell was a mediating theologian. And he argued vehemently against defining miracles as laws, as violations of laws of nature, and said that's, that's just a huge mistake So, C.S. Lewis, in his book, Miracles, a hundred years later, did the same thing, and they both defined miracles as um, God's suspension of the normal workings of nature. Now, a little bit of explanation is important here. Both Bushnell and C.S. Lewis saw nature and nature's laws as part of God's general providence. So, God is always at work in nature. So nature is not independent of God. It's not a machine sitting over against God into which God has to thrust some kind of iron rod to break it, to do a miracle. Rather, we as Christians should see nature as part of the providential working of God in the natural world. It's part of God's general, not special providence. But a miracle is part of God's special providence where God suspends, not violates, but suspends the nor- his, his normal working in and through nature to accomplish something
0: right um so it kind of speaks to well, it definitely speaks to the aspect of god's sovereignty I, um now i know you're you're minion but i think that they they also kind of share that with calvinists there's a tempest- oh, absolutely <laughs> okay
1: i um- insist all day long if you'll let me that i believe in the sovereignty of god but i say god is sovereign over his sovereignty
0: there you go. Um, now you've mentioned in your writing uh, that while liberal theology is by no means like a monolith, um, you've observed general several general tendencies. You've called them hallmarks, and one you say is a quote: a tendency to deny miracles, as we've been talking about, or demythologize them, so that belief in no miracles is essential uh, to authentic Christian existence. So where um, so demyth. and I always mispronounce this demythologization um what is it why I mean what does it come from
1: well the term itself comes from a German New Testament scholar named Rudolf Boltmann who was certainly liberal in his theology but he was he was a New Testament scholar so he's hard to categorize but insofar as he was a theologian he was a liberal theologian so he coined the, the term and I can't pronounce it in German In German, it doesn't mean exactly what it sounds like in English. It's not so much discarding the myths as interpreting the myths. Mm. He interpreted all the stories, all the miracle stories of the Bible as myths, meaning that they are narratives that tell us something about God and ourselves, but they're not to be taken literally. So an example is the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus. According to Boltman, the resurrection of Jesus did happen, but it was not an empty tomb. The body of Jesus stayed in the tomb. He did not come out of the tomb. That would be a miracle that would go against science. So what was the resurrection? It was the miraculous rise of faith Mm -hmm. of the disciples that the message of Jesus was true in spite of his martyrdom on the cross
0: sure and uh it's i've heard of that type of theology from boltman uh described as existential because it gets to the i guess existential message but is there what <laughs> it does seem kind of um problematic though to have something to have something existential so detached from the concrete wouldn't you say mm-hmm. um you know and so uh on uh that no one of the other hallmarks um You've you've pointed out, uh, and this is kind of shifting gears, but a hallmark you definitely have seen in liberal Christianity has been a tendency to emphasize, well, I should quote it, quote, Ten- the tendency to emphasize the imminence of God over God's transcendence. So imminence over transcendence. What, is, what does this mean?
1: Yeah. So after Schleiermacher, not so much in Schleiermacher, though that's debatable. Schleiermacher is vague on a lot of things. After Schleiermacher in Germany, then in the United States, the liberal tradition and the theologians that were part of the liberal tradition um, came to believe that traditional Christian theology had overemphasized God's otherness, that God seemed in traditional theology remote, distant, um, uninvolved in daily life unaffected by what happens in the world so they gradually began to turn to philosophies like Hegel a german philosopher who really emphasized the imminence of god as absolute spirit is how what he called god absolute spirit and conti- for hegel god and the human mind are continuous with each other they're not separate they're really interdependent hegel said for example that without the world god is not god mm-hmm. Expression of the imminence of God in the world and the world's imminence in the life of God. So many liberal theologians, and I would say most, if not all, began to pick up on that aspect of Hegel. Not everything Hegel said, but that that idea of Hegel. So Hegel and Schleiermacher were, by the way, um, basically um, at the same time in Berlin, knew each other, didn't like each other. Yeah. Um, I've heard much, that. Very much influenced liberal theology. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think another impulse was a turn, especially in America, against Calvinism uh, in New England, and uh, I can sympathize with that, but they went too far, and to them, Calvinism made God so sovereign that he was untouchable, he couldn't really be related to, he wasn't relational, hmm. he wanted a relational God. So instead of emphasizing God's otherness and sovereignty, they began to more and more emphasize God's imminence, meaning His nearness, His involvement, not through miracles, but in our inner lives. So find God in yourself, and not out there outside yourself. Is right. The best idea.
0: Right. And you spent some time in the past studying in Germany, which, which um, of course, as we've we've brought up, it was the the original context, at least of both liberal theology, of critical scholarship of the Bible, who are some of these other 19th century German theological figures who are considered part of the tradition of liberal theology, who can we can kind of place on a trajectory?
1: Even. Right. There's one main one that jumps out. Uh, I think all historians of liberal theology would agree that Albrecht Ritzel, who taught at the University of Göttingen in Germany, Uh, really founded a school of theology. That is, he had many followers, whereas Schleiermacher really started a trend. uh, Ritzel founded a school of theology, and uh, in fact, so much that liberal theology was often called Ritzlianism after his name. Albrecht Ritzel was influenced by another German philosopher named Immanuel Kant, uh, who uh, died in 1804. And Immanuel Kant was famous for many things, but one thing was reducing religion to ethics. According to Immanuel Kant, the only purpose of religion is to prop up ethics. Uh, Without God, Immanuel Kant argued, there's no reason to be good. We have to believe in God and in afterlife in order to have objective right and wrong. And I think he's right about that, but he's wrong to reduce religion to ethics. But Albrecht Grissel came very close to reducing religion to ethics And his followers went the rest of the way. He may not have gone all the way with that. And it became known as the social gospel, Mm -hmm. especially in America. Ritzel's followers banded together in various organizations such as the Brotherhood of the Kingdom, led by Walter Rauschenbusch, a Baptist, and very much influenced by Ritzel, and called themselves uh, social Gospelers. were very much influenced by the progressive movement in American politics and economics and so forth. But what was the problem here? The problem was that they tended to reduce Christianity to the kingdom of God, by which they meant this worldly change, social transformation, society organized according to love. They were not talking about a future uh, kingdom of God on earth after Christ returns. They were talking about something that church could bring about through social transformation. And that was inspired by Ritzel. Ritzel really believed in that.
0: Yeah. You know, of all the nineteenth century German figures, I'm probably least read in ritual. I, I, I remember there was a kind of a split in ritual in the ritual school. You had Trelch on one end, and I forget who was at the other. But um I, I definitely sense that. There was almost like uh, the place that God once occupied uh, corporate, the corporate body of believers kind of replaced just the that place. And so, um to hear it from from you it kind of affirms okay i was i was reading something right i was i was definitely gleaning gleaning at least something from ritzel um so b- imagine,
1: we have, have to quote we have to throw in a quote here oh, okay quote. yeah definitely Let me throw it in so one <laughs> of the critics of this kind of liberal theology maybe liberal theology in general was h richard Niebuhr, who taught at yale university yale divinity school one or the other i can't remember i think yale divinity school he was brother. And, uh, you know, a lot of conservative Christians would say he was liberal, but he was actually a critic of the kind of real liberal theology we're talking about. And his famous quote is this, if I can say it by memory. In liberal theology, a god without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And that was aimed at Ritzel and his followers.
0: Well, and you can't really appreciate grace until you uh, understand the gravity of sin. Isn't it? <laughs> I mean, really.
1: <laughs> um, liberal theolo- real liberal theologians do not believe in original sin. They believe sin is selfishness, self-centeredness, sure. but they don't have an explanation for why we're all that way. <laughs> right. Um, so,
0: yeah. Uh, and kind of after Ritzel, um, as we get into the 20th century we see like several things happen um and like for instance uh albert schweitzer comes in with his critique of the scholars of the enlightenment and and during the 19th century who tried to uncover a jesus of history apart from how jesus is revealed in scriptural writings of him uh karl bart who's trained and educated by many of the later 19th century esteemed theologians comes in uh, and Bart suffers a disillusionment with everything he had been taught as he sees their ideas, especially the, that theology rooted in the things we've discussed, as being ultimately responsible for German pro-war efforts as World War I approaches. Do you see these things as constituting the demise of the power liberal theology once held, or do you, did you see it, did it just manifest, manifest itself differently, is it still here? I know that's, that's like three different questions, but I mean...
1: You, it's you know, definitely I, still here or I wouldn't have written the book, <laughs> <all right. laughs> so. but it's not, it's not very well known. It's not, <laughs> something's happening on my computer screen. I, I don't see myself. I don't know if you still see me. I still see you and hear you. So, okay, uh, so there's just something, my computer's updating or something. You can't okay. stop that, you know? So um, as long as you can see me, that's fine.
0: Yeah, I can so, see and hear you, yeah
1: liberal theology went through a crisis because of world war one in europe uh, but it didn't die out it just changed how did it change well in europe uh liberal theology changed from being overly optimistic to being more pessimistic about the possibilities of humans in history bringing about the kingdom of god through human effort mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, See you at all. So let me just see what I can do here to get rid you of know, things. I still see and hear you, so you're still with okay. us. Um, while you're Microsoft, Microsoft was you know what Microsoft does. I guess we shouldn't get into that, but it was <laughs> my, without my consent.
0: Without your consent,
1: yeah. And Liberal theology in Europe went through this tremendous struggle, and Barthes was part of it. Uh, he departed from liberal theology. He shook it off. Now, of course, some American fundamentalists have always thought Bart was liberal, but he doesn't belong to this tradition that we're talking about here, the Schleiermacher Ritzel tradition. No, he departed from that. And there are other names in that tradition. A big one is Harnack, a German uh, church historian uh, who wrote the Kaiser Wilhelm speech declaring war. And uh, when Bart saw that, that really shook him up, that liberal theology could support the the war effort of Kaiser Wilhelm. So in Europe, it really went through a process of of discouraging, you might say, about the possibilities of our bringing about the kingdom of God on earth. But it didn't die out. It just became what we call chastened, more pessimistic. And you had the rise of liberal theologians like Paul Tillich started out in Germany but came to America, a major liberal theologian, but not of the ritual kind, more of an existentialist, very much influenced by existentialism, Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish uh, Christian philosopher, and others. In America, it took World War II to really put American liberal theology into that same crisis mode, and after World War II and learning about the Holocaust, American liberal theologians became much more pessimistic than they had been before. Even, you know, because we won World War One and we were not uh, directly attacked and so forth, we came into the war fairly late. Uh, you know, it didn't put liberal theology into a crisis in America, but World War II did. In spite of the fact that we won, the horrors that were revealed, mm-hmm. the concentration camps and and everything, just caused liberal theology here to go into a crisis but it came out of it alive if not well and i think that's the question is how well is liberal theology but you know the only thing that really changed both in europe and america was a more pessimistic mode of thinking about human history and it's no longer seen by liberals as inevitably leading into the kingdom of god
0: right um so kind of going back to when we first uh discussed like the the usual discourse that we often hear words like conservative and liberal even though even those the terms those terms have been um i guess increasingly less useful and especially today i feel like i don't even know if i even in like political discourse i don't even hear them as often as i did five ten years ago i hear terms like woke and whatnot but um but can you can someone be uh you know, quote unquote, liberal in one sphere of life, or have views and understandings that are liberal, uh, but but maybe quote unquote conservative in their faith or theological convictions, or vice versa. Is that is that something?
1: Uh, no, not really. <laughs> not in the sense I mean liberal. But okay, so uh, if we were to switch to liberal as you know, a kind of subjective term. Mm-hmm whatever i think is wrong you know whatever i think is too edgy too progressive or something yes you know but i'm talking about a particular tradition of people mostly men but not only there's some feminist theologians that belong in this category Mm -hmm. people who know each other read each other uh attend professional society meetings i belong to a professional Mm -hmm a meeting of theologians in chicago that was mostly liberal theologians there were a few of us who weren't and they treated us nicely but uh kind of patronizingly like oh you poor benighted ignorant unscientifically minded evangelicals we'll mm-hmm. let you come we'll even let you read a paper or something now and then but it was clear that we didn't belong to their tradition Now, what what, what do i mean by their tradition University of Chicago Divinity School, for example, uh, and the seminary surrounding it. There are like six seminaries surrounding the University of Chicago of different denominational traditions. Mostly faculty are liberal in those yeah. uh, seminaries.
0: Well, I, I've done coursework at several of those schools. My my seminary, my own seminary, uh, is now in Chicago. They relocated in my last year. They're, they're, they're actually in Hyde Park across the street from... <laughs>
1: I've University. probably been there because I so, uh, know
0: that. yeah. So I've I've done some coursework at CTS and Garrett, and, and I
1: definitely been oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I know CTS well. Uh, the president of CTS, who I will not name, but you might know who I mean, uh, is a liberal. Was at that time a liberal theologian. I'm talking about in the 1990s, and she gave a paper at this professional society meeting, and the title of her paper was, actually, this was in the 1980s before the fall of the Soviet mm-hmm. Union. The title of her paper was God and Her Survival in a Nuclear Age. Mm-hmm. Now, that's all I need to say. I don't need to go any further. That's a liberal well, title. <laughs> now, for – but but again, like,
0: could someone – I mean, see, they could, they could belong to either of the major American – part. I mean, could someone be – you know, someone being left or right wing on the political spectrum no. does yeah. not always have – doesn't necessarily bear on what we would call theologically
1: no, no. they're separate things sure right. um
0: and i th- and i guess that we could always clarify that that by saying orthodox i like to use the term small or orth- small o orthodox right yeah. to yeah. Uh, differentiate from eastern orthodox um, But you know it's interesting I, I i run into a lot today and especially in my own generation um people in the church who are who are rather liberal or progressive on maybe a certain couple of political issues, certainly some social issues. I even know uh, people who are um, uh, progressive on issues like gay marriage, LGBT-related issues, or on gender identity, but at the same time consider themselves uh, orthodox theologically or, or niceno. Like, they're actually kind of uh, tired. They see it as a previous generation that tried to throw out things like know niceno uh beliefs in god like god god's omnipotence a historicity of the resurrection like you mentioned um you know they have a high christology they they believe jesus is more than just a good moral teacher uh they believe his him being redeemer involves the death and resurrection that it opens the way to our salvation um they're, they're not trying to deplete the the great tradition as 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 we could say but um but you've you written a little bit about that, about how you've kind of seen a difference between what's called progressive Christianity versus liberal Christianity. I mean, some continuity, but what well, so would you say be, kind of the difference between those terms?
1: Yeah, let's begin by with this: progressive Christianity is not a tradition. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Liberal theology is. There's a big difference. So I can't generalize about progressive Christianity. Um, I know people who consider themselves progressive Christians, um, mm-hmm. and some might consider me a progressive Christian just because I believe in women in ministry. Right, <laughs> yeah. There's no history, there's no historical tradition behind progressive Christianity. Mm-hmm. very subjective as to what that means. Right. And if someone says they're a progressive Christian, I have no idea what they mean until we talk further. But right. If says I'm a real liberal theologian, I have a sense of what they mean by that. Right, they belong to a tradition. They see themselves as, in some way, following in the footsteps of Schleiermacher and ritzel and Tillich and boltman and people like that. Yeah. yeah,
0: I guess when I've heard progressive Christianity, it's, it's it's like it depends on who you talk to, what that
1: means. Absolutely, it's
0: That's possible. Awesome. You know, it could be an umbrella yeah. term. Maybe I, I know the, the emergent church movement and figures or like that. Didn't
1: before. that come and go fast?
0: It, it did come and go. Back. <laughs> um, I, I hear it's still out there, but I still think it's making the waves. Um, I don't know. You write for Pathy Austin, and I know they have multiple channels and many contributors from many different persuasions and backgrounds. So maybe there's still some people out there really write, writing, but I just haven't seen much of them. Um, uh, kind of be, and I know you also, you, um, and I want I, I wanted. I know this is kind of, this is. Kind of related to the topic, and I wanted to kind of bring this up before uh, I let you go. I, you've also written a book how, um, I think it was called, How One Can Be an Evangelical Without Being Conservative. Was that kind of speaking to the other side? Because I know, yes. um, you know we have liberalism on one end, which you could say throws the baby out with the bathwater. Right, right. But you also have a fund. you have the other extreme of fundamentalism. And what would you say is kind of the, the the downfall of fun, like, or not the downfall, but what is so bad about fundamentalism that's um that we should be you know as christians should be cautious about jumping to the other extreme
1: yeah <laughs> so that that'll be my next book against fundamentalism <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> i don't know for sure if i'm going to write that uh, i grew up in a church that probably would be considered fundamentalist um not not your typical kind of baptist fundamentals we were pentecostals but we used the Schofield Reference Bible and considered the footnotes to the Schofield Reference Bible to be as inspired as the text itself, at least treated them that way. Young Earth creation, anti-evolution, you know, all the things that we kind of associate, but with the add-on of the, the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit, which not all fundamentalists believe in, but we did. But um, so the problem that I had with fundamentalism and still have with again, real fundamentalism, (laughs) not just perceived fundamentalism. Sure, it's,
0: everyone likes to throw the word out and charge everyone of being a fundamentalist when it's not, always the case. It is (laughs) a
1: tradition. There is a fundamentalist tradition. It goes back to the late 19th century, early 20th century. I just, with great pain, gave away my first editions of the Fundamentals. I had the whole series of the first editions of the Fundamentals from 1910, 1911, And that was really crucial to the fundamentalist tradition. So what's wrong with it? Today, and in the last 50, 60 years or so, uh, especially American, let's just say American fundamentalism, I think, has fallen into a kind of a head in the sand. Um, Obscurantism is the word we use in scholarly circles. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Mm -hmm. I've heard a fundamentalist pastor end his sermon that way. He said, the Christian's attitude toward the secular world should be, don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is already made up. Well, I'm not projecting that onto all fundamentalists, but I think there is that tendency among fundamentalists. But the book you mentioned, How to Be Evangelical Without Being Conservative, wasn't really aimed so much at at fundamentalists, real fundamentalists, as it was at conservative evangelicals who were pushing back very hard against any new ideas that would come up among evangelicals, such as open theism, for example, or annihilationism, sure. or he writes new work on justification, for example. And there, in my perception, in way there was a knee-jerk reaction against anything considered new. I mm-hmm. so was trying to say, you can be evangelical and have an open mind. Right. So- Is what you're open to is new light from scripture, and I believe N.T. Wright is doing scriptural work. He's not influenced by secular culture. He's not liberal, but he is redefining justification in a non-traditional way. Sure. I don't necessarily agree with him, but I that his project is worth considering, whereas conservative evangelicals are reacting very negatively against it just because it's not traditional. It's not what Luther said. It's not what Calvin said, etc. And my argument was you can be evangelical and have an open mind to what John Robinson, the Puritan pastor, called the new light that God always has to break forth from his word.
0: Yeah. Well, Dr. Olson, this was a great discussion. Um, I really am honored to have you on the show. Um, if, you're, if you're up to it, I'd love to have you back uh, another time. And uh, and I look forward to uh, – what's the title of your upcoming book on the topic we've been discussing?
1: Against Liberal Theology.
0: Against Liberal Theology. And uh, and I look – The subtitle
1: to- is Putting the brakes on Progressive Christianity.
0: <laughs> All right. I am looking forward to that, and I uh, encourage our listeners to check out Doctor Olson, his blog, and his writings. So, right. God Good bless. To be with you, thank Good you. To be with you. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Hi, and thank you for listening. This is Reverend Andrew Christensen again. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and don't forget to check out our previous episodes of Dolph. Protest too much if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or another streaming service that lets you rate and review our show. Please do so. Five stars, one star, however you honestly feel we can take it, and would love and appreciate your feedback. Also, for any further questions or suggestions for our show, please email me at Doth Protest Too Much Podcast at gmail.com. God bless your day.